Amen. Thank you, Terry. Good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. It's so good to see all of you uh, this morning. We, this fall, have been in the middle of a series looking at the books of First and Second Samuel and the life of David. This morning, however, we're going to take a little break uh, from that, and we're just going to take uh, one more week to consider uh, what, what happened around this event we looked at last week where David, this man after God's own heart, sinned mightily against the Lord in his uh, committing adultery with Bathsheba and then um, plotting and then eventually killing her husband Uriah, who was one of his best friends. And how it is that a man like that could still be called in the scripture a man after God's own heart. So this morning we want to look at the prayer that David prayed to God surrounding this event. And it's found in Psalm 51 in your Bible. But we also have it printed for you. You're welcome to read along in your Bible if you'd like. It is printed for you in the worship folder. And it will also be on the screen behind me as we read this amazing, amazing prayer of David. Occasioned by his sin against Bathsheba. And as we continue to talk about what it looks like for us to be people who repent well, as David did this morning. So let's read, okay? This entire psalm, beginning in verse 1. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. And then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Open, O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem, and then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Now, I just a very simple point this morning, and that's just this. Christians pray prayers like Psalm 51. Irreligious people don't. And you know what I mean by that, right? Irreligious people, people who probably don't have any church background, secular kind of maybe even atheistic, agnostic, irreligious people who don't want to have anything to do with with God, Christianity, religion, they don't pray prayers like this. They don't think they need to. But religious people don't pray prayers like this either. Only Christians, only people who've had an experience of God's grace in the gospel can truly pray prayers like this. And so if you're truly a Christian, then, you know, probably on a daily basis, your life will be filled with prayers like this prayer 
in Psalm 51. So if that's true, then let's look uh, at what it means and how it is that we become people who can pray prayers like this. And so in order to pray prayers like this, like Psalm 51, there are really three things that have to be true of you, and they're all in this text. And they're just this. They're the three points of the outline that I've given you there. First, you have to have a practical, not theoretical, practical working knowledge that you're a sinner. Secondly, you have to hate your sin without hating yourself. And then thirdly, you have to be committed to obedience with joy as your motivation. Those three things. You have to know your sin. You have to hate your sin. You have to forsake your sin. That's what the catechisms and the confessions, that's how they define repentance. Repentance is those three things. Knowing your sin, hating your sin, forsaking your sin. And those are the kind of people who can pray prayers like this. So let's, let's talk together about this then, okay? And it's going to be a little more somber this morning. This is a somber text, so I don't have any jokes, unfortunately. So any chance you get to laugh, please do, because I love it when people do that. But there's not going to be a lot of that this morning. Because this is tough. This is hard. And we've got a lot of really difficult things to talk about. Okay? So first, what does it mean for us to have a practical, not theoretical, working knowledge that we're a sinner? What does it mean to know you're a sinner, okay? So in order to pray prayers like this, this is what you have to have. Now listen to the way David says it in verses 1 through 5, okay? Let's read it again. Have mercy, O God, on me according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Not exactly fun things to hear. But the Westminster Confession of Faith, the larger catechism, in answering the question, what is repentance? It says, repentance begins with what it calls a sight and sense of your sin. You have to see your sin You have to have a sense of your sin. Those two things have to be there in order for you to be the kind of person who can repent well, who could ultimately pray prayers like Psalm 51. Okay, so a sight and also a sense of your sin. So let's talk about those two things for just a minute. So beginning just with what it means for us to see our sins, okay? First, there's a number of different things. First, in order to see your sins the way the old guys that are long past now talked about, you have to see the aim of your sin. In other words, you have to see, and this text teaches, that every sin is ultimately a sin against God. David says it this way, verse 4, Against you, and only you, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And you read that and you say, but didn't David sin against Bathsheba? Didn't he sin against Uriah? And the answer, of course, is yes, he sinned against both of them. But what the scripture would teach is that he sinned against both of them because he first sinned against God. And so sin is not just sociological in its nature, it is theological and cosmic. And by that I mean this, last week we saw that the the, the heart's desire in sin is really to replace God, and that was Satan's hook in the garden, you remember there, he said to Adam and Eve, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil, you'll be like God, in other words, you can take control of your life, and you won't have to be accountable to anybody but yourself, you can run the show, you can be your own master, you can decide for yourself what's right. And what's wrong. And this is the aim of sin. I want to be in God's place. I want to be the one to whom everyone else defers their judgment. I want to be the one who decides what's right and what's wrong. And what David is teaching us and what the scripture would teach us is, no, that's not right. You don't define right and wrong. But neither does the expectation of other people. 
neither, your mother-in-law doesn't define right and wrong. God defines right and wrong. And it's against God that David sees that he's sinned. Sin is rebellion against him. The aim of sin is just that. And I'm going to move on because we talked a lot about this. But the aim of sin is just this. You have to see it. You have to know that every sin is really ultimately a sin against God. It is a desire to usurp God from his throne and to put yourself there in his place. David trying to control his life. David manipulating the people around him. David sending people here and making orders and doing all these kinds of things. And then he says, against you I've sinned. But secondly, you have to not only see the aim of your sin, you need to see the depth of your sin here as well. In other words, you have to understand this principle. And here it is. You have to understand and be able to say this. I'm not a sinner because I sin. I sin because I'm a sinner. I'm not a sinner because I sin. I sin because I'm a sinner. And this is what the Bible teaches, that when Adam and Eve sinned against God, they fell. In other words, they were no longer whole. They lost what... You know, however you want to describe what it was, they had the original righteousness that was theirs before the fall. And we've inherited this from them. There's something wrong inside of us. We've been corrupted at the core of our lives. And it's out of this core that the sins we commit in all their various forms flow. Theologians refer to this as, the, as, as what they call original sin. And David says it this way. Look at verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. Remember, so my, my, my nephew, Jake, trying to climb the stairs. That's not cute. It's evil. Right? When they won't sleep, they're not, you know, oh, they're being wicked. From the womb, they come out that way. In the hospital, before you bring them home, they're that way. That's what he's saying. There's something wrong inside of us that's there from the, moment, the moments before we come out of our mother's wombs. It's there. And you need to see the depth. So the aim and the depth. But then thirdly, here's the third thing about this. Is not only do you have to see the aim of your sin and the depth of your sin from this text, but you have to take personal responsibility for it. See, and this is the big, this is the big deal. Okay? I mean, if you look at David's prayer, and you look carefully, there's no qualification. There's no, yes, of course, I've sinned, but... You know, David doesn't blame shift. He doesn't make any excuses. Look at verse 4. He says, I've sinned and I've done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. That's David's way of saying, I'm guilty. I have no defense. He takes personal responsibility for his actions. He says, this, what, what has happened is my fault. Put it on me. I have done this. I'm guilty and I have no defense. I think this is a big deal, big, big deal in light of the cultural situation that we find ourselves in where nobody wants to take responsibility for anything. I mean, if you look at the political landscape right now, that's the problem. All the Democrats do is blame the Republicans. All the Republicans do is blame the Democrats. I mean, nobody's willing to stand up and say, it's my fault, put it on me, I'm the problem. I mean, if you look at all the bailout programs and the political movements like Occupy Wall Street or whatever it is, the flavor of all those things seems to be just this. It's not my fault. It's your fault. And I'm concerned about it. I'll be honest. I mean, this failure to take responsibility for my actions is becoming a way of life in our culture. The Wall Street Journal ran an article a few months ago. And if you're a dad, especially, I think you ought to pay attention to it. But it it, it was called, Where Have All the Good Men Gone? 
And it, you ought to look it up. It's fascinating because what the writer does is, is the article argues that there's a whole new social category that has been created in the last 10 or 15 years, which she refers to as pre-adulthood. And she, re, she compares what she calls pre-adulthood with adolescence, which was a term invented, I don't know if you know this, but in the mid-20th century uh, to describe the period between childhood and adulthood. Because as a country, we had become so prosperous that families could afford to have their kids, instead of going right into the workforce, you know, or out into the fields, you know, to, to work alongside of their parents for the good of the family, we had become prosperous enough to where the kids could, instead of going right to work, they could go and get an education. And the result was what sociologists called adolescence. It was these teenage years where kids weren't really kids, but they weren't really adults yet. Kids were waitlisted for adulthood, you could say. And whereas 100 years ago, 12-year-olds were expected to do all kinds of things that we wouldn't even expect 21-year-olds to do now. This social phenomenon happened. Now, what this article in the Wall Street Journal says is, um, it's fascinating. She says that over the past 25 years or so, slowly... Adolescence has been extended beyond just the teenage years and now into the early 20s and now even into the mid-20s. So what you have now is you have this new category of person called what she calls a pre-adult, somebody who's out of school, maybe in their mid-20s, whatever it might be, but for all practical purposes has still not entered the world of adults. They haven't started a career. They haven't started a family. uh, They're just hanging out in limbo. They're not kids anymore. They're not adults yet. And I realize they're extenuating circumstances and the economy's bad, and so let's be careful I just am making an observation here in the sense that what this lady's saying, one of the statistics, she says that in 1970, 84% of Americans between the ages of 25 and 29 were married or had been married. 84%. Today, only, what is that, 40 years later, only 35% of 25 to 29-year-olds have been married or are married, and it's declining rapidly. The average age of a first marriage now is 30 years old. And it's just an interesting social phenomenon that we're having to deal with of, of how this is happening and college graduates not being able to find jobs, coming back to their parents' homes. And again, not, not discounting all of those things. What I think you see and what I'm afraid is arising is the cry of this generation of people, my generation and even younger than me, is take care of me. And we look to our government and our leaders and we say, it's your job to take care of me. And what I'm concerned, I'm concerned that we're raising a generation of young people who refuse to take responsibility for their lives. It's the exact opposite of how David acts here in Psalm 51. He says, he doesn't blame others. He doesn't make excuses. He takes responsibility for his life and for his actions, and he says, blame me, I'm guilty, I have no defense. So to see your sin, that's what's, okay, there, there are the parts, right? To see your sin, to see the aim of your sin, to see the depth of your sin, to take personal responsibility for it. But it's not enough just to see it. What the old catechisms say and what I think this passage teaches is, is you also, in order to pray prayers like Psalm 51, you have to have a sense of it. And I think this is what David means in verse 3 when he says, my sin is ever before me. My sin is never out of view. It's the grid through which I view all of my life. I have a sense of it. I've been reading a a biography on Jonathan Edwards, and one of the things that this biographer talks about is Jonathan Edwards was a preacher in the mid-18th century, and as they preached, and the Great Awakening happened in the the colonies in the 1740s and 1750s, what would happen is Jonathan Edwards would preach, and as he preached, people would come under such conviction of sin that they would literally, I mean, and he was not Pentecostal, okay? This was Puritan New England. 
But the people would moan and cry out and groan and scream for the terror that they would, that they would experience over their sins. Uh, there's one story I read where uh, the, there was this particular college where, where some students were coming under conviction of sin and being kind of awakened to their sinful condition. And uh, they were told to go to this room and wait for one of their professors, but he was unable to make it. And so he sent one of Jonathan Edwards' sermons to have them read. And as they read it, they were profoundly changed. And one of the young men in the room, this was his comment at the end of the reading of the sermon. He said, I remember well that I was afraid at the close of the sermon to walk across the floor lest it should be the cover of hell. I mean, see, it's one thing to know you're a sinner. It's something entirely different to have, a, to have your sins ever before you, to have a sense of them on your heart. And John Calvin, in writing about this text, says, from David's example, we may learn who they are that can alone be said to have had their consciences wounded with a sense of sin and who can find no rest until they've obtained mercy uh, excuse me, until they've obtained assurance of his mercy. So let me just ask, have you had your conscience wounded? Have you lost sleep over your sins? Do you have a sense of them? If the answer is no, then you won't pray prayers like Psalm 51, and that means you might be religious, but you're not a Christian yet. Because Christian are people who've been so overwhelmed by the sight and sense of their sin, they're completely undone. Their sins are ever before them, and they have no choice but to turn to Jesus. And the way you know, okay, the way you know if you've not only had a sight but also a sense of your sins, is what I said at the very beginning. It's that you will live then out of or with a practical working knowledge, not theoretical, practical working knowledge of your sin that affects all of your life. And let me help you get a vision for what I mean. This is what this would look like in a person. Somebody who has a practical working knowledge that they know their sins. There would be, number one, a profound humility. Uh, there, when somebody asks you for a prayer request, you'd immediately be able to give them one or two things, maybe three areas where you need God's strength and grace. Off the top of your head, they'd be right there. You'll be patient with other people, this kind of person would be, who has their sins ever before them, because you'll be ever mindful of how God's been patient with you and your sin. You'd be quick to forgive because of all you've been forgiven. You, you'd listen more than you'd talk in any conversation because you would know that you have more to learn than you have to contribute. The default mode of your heart would be to say, you're right, and I'm wrong, not I'm right, you're wrong. You'd resolutely refuse to defend yourself, make excuses, boast of your accomplishments, or run other people down with your words, or try to make, try to make yourself feel better. You see what I'm talking about? I, mean, I could go on and on here. The first part of true repentance is to see your sin and have a sense of it, to have a practical, not a theoretical, working knowledge that you are a sinner that begins to pervade all of your life as you relate to other people. You see, irreligious people don't have this. Because typically secular irreligious people don't even believe in sin. It's a category they don't even really deal with. Religious people don't either. And Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, in religion, our only hope is that we can live good enough lives for God to love and bless us. Therefore, every instance of sin and repentance is traumatic, unnatural, and horribly threatening. Only under great duress does a religious person admit they've sinned because their only hope is in their moral goodness. But a Christian, see, is different from a religious person. A Christian is a person who knows they can't be moral enough or good enough and they've stopped trying. (laughs) They've had their consciences so wounded by sin that they've despaired of ever being good enough and so their only hope, the only thing they have left is to turn to Jesus who is the Savior of sinners. So the gospel reminds me I'm a sinner 
and I'm loved. It doesn't let me off the hook. But it also doesn't let me ultimately despair over my sin either. And so there's the first part. How do you, be, how do you become a person who can pray prayers like Psalm 51? You have to know your sin. You have to have a sight of it and a sense of it. And a practical working, not a theoretical, practical working knowledge that you're a sinner. But secondly, okay, second thing that has to be true of you, if you're going to pray prayers like Psalm 51, is just this. You secondly have to hate your sin without hating yourself. You have to hate your sin without hating yourself. All the old creeds and the catechisms teach that it's not enough to know you're a sinner. A true Christian also hates that he's a sinner. And this point's not explicit in David's prayer, but if you listen to his tone, I think you'll hear it. And especially look in verses uh, 1 and 2 again. And what is it about God's character that David fills his mind with here? Let's read it again. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. That's the word hesed that we've talked a lot about. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. David's filling his heart with the love of God and the grief of God, not with his wrath and anger against sin. He's, he's saying to God, I realize you're a God who loves that you love covenantally. You love when it hurts you to love. You love people who turn their back on you and abuse you. You're a God who loves people who are faithless to you, and I've been faithless, and you've loved me. And he says, I've trampled on your love. I've broken your heart. You've shown me steadfast love, and I've been absolutely faithless to you. You see, the way The way, David, and the way you really come to hate sin is not to hate it because of the consequences, but to hate it because of how it breaks God's heart. This is what David's working his heart towards here. And this is what the catechisms teach. They say that when repentance happens, it happens here, when you're forced to stare down just how gross and destructive your sin is and then to see God move towards you, not in wrath, but in mercy in Christ to save you. That's what creates grief and hatred of sin. And so how do you work on your heart? How, Christians work on their hearts differently than religious people do. See, the default mode of religion, again, is to go to God's law and his punishment. And then the conclusion at the end of when I take my, in my sin, I take myself to God's law, and I see his wrath against sin, the conclusion is God must hate me. Christians do their heart work in a completely different way. Christians do their heart work by going back to God's mercy in the gospel. And that's the way, see, you begin to see your sin and hate it without hating yourself. Because, see, here's the thing. and This, book, this blows my mind, but I can, I can diagnose my own heart. I can tell you that this is true of me, and it makes me sick to my stomach. I'm a religious person more than I am a gospel Christian still in many ways. And what I'm finding to be true of myself and of all religious people is religious people hate themselves more than they hate their sin. In other words, they're filled with self-loathing because they've let themselves down. I mean, what's their hope? Again, remember the goal is moral goodness. And so if you're religious and you fail, then you hate yourself for failing more than you hate for your sin for what it does to God's heart. And that's where the grief, that's where the, the pain comes from. I mean, do you, do you hear that? that? That in the religious construct, you'll hate yourself for failing and letting yourself down And your discomfort will be from that and not from what your sin does to God's heart. So you'll hate yourself, but not your sin. And therefore, what will happen is, is repentance will turn into penance. Right? Do you know what I mean by that? You'll begin to, you'll begin to, 
to turn to repentance as a form of atoning for your sin. You'll turn repentance into self-flagellation. You may not beat your body, but you'll beat yourself up. You'll verbally abuse yourself, whatever, all in an attempt to try to make yourself feel better. Religious people, you know, do this. Religious repentance is hating yourself instead of your sins. But true gospel repentance is hating your sin without hating yourself. It's hating sin for what it does to God's heart, not hating yourself for failing. And this is how you know if the gospel is taking root in your heart. In the middle, here, right here, look here. In the middle of your absolute worst sinful moments, can you be sad but not hopeless? Can you grieve but not beat yourself up? Let me ask it this way. <laughs> Has anybody experienced God's grace to the degree that you can sing about your sins? Because that's what David does. He sings about his sins. I mean, is there a ground note of joy in your life that knowing God loves you in Christ, irrespective of your moral behavior brings, that conquers even your most guilty moments and sets your heart aflame to sing to God of his greatness and his goodness to you? Is your heart full of the steadfast love of the Lord for you? Are you absolutely convinced that even in your worst moments, God is inclined towards you in love? See, Christians repent. They don't do penance. They repent. They hate their sin without hating themselves. And so, true Christians then first see and sense their sin. They hate their sin, number two. And then lastly, as we kind of try all too close here, they are, number three, committed to forsaking their sin. And this is the third part of repentance. According to the Westminster Confession of Faith, repentance is knowing your sin, confessing your sin, hating your sin, and forsaking your sin. And this word repentance really means something like to change. Repentance is not, and this is my concern for us, especially in our denomination, in this little gospel bubble subculture that's going on in our, in our, in our you know, circles right now, you know, the Gospel Coalition and all these guys that you might be familiar with, is repentance is not just being able to freely talk about your sin. Repentance is change. Uh, if you're reading in community Bible reading with us, we read in, in Jonah chapter 3 this past week, and in Jonah chapter 3 there's this great, great analogy of what repentance looks like where the prophet Jonah goes to the city of Nineveh Again, you know, he's already run away from God. God's caught up with him. He spent all that time in the belly of the fish, and he ends up in Nineveh, and he preaches the message that God preaches, tells him to preach 40 days, and Nineveh will be overturned, and the most amazing thing happens. The entire city repents. And here's the way that the king of Nineveh puts it. He says, "This let everyone turn from his evil way. See, that's repentance. Repentance means turning. It means purposing and endeavoring after a new obedience. It means turning from evil ways. And look at the transformation that happens from the beginning of Psalm 15 to the end and what happens in David's heart. I mean, by the end, listen to what David's saying in verses 13 through 15. He says, then I will teach transgressors your ways. This is the one, this is the guy who's just been caught committing adultery and murdering one of his best friends. Here's where he works his heart. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness, O Lord. Open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. David says, I'm going to be an evangelist. I mean, I can't wait to get out there and tell everybody I meet about your justice and your grace. 
I mean, there's this radical, radical change that happens to David from the beginning to the end of the psalm. But in order to understand it, we've got to follow David's reasoning. And so if you look very carefully at verse 13 with me, at the beginning of verse 13, there's this word, then I will teach transgressors your ways. Well, what comes before the then, then? That explains the transformation David's describing. So see, that then cues us into that we have to go back a few verses to verse 10, and we have to see what David's relying on to bring about the kind of change that he's, that he's foreseen and that he's hoping for in his life. So go back to verse 10, and you'll see what, what's gonna hap- what God's going to do. He prays there in verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. You see what David's doing? I mean, David's, David's going back. He's saying, there's a work that God must work into my soul. There's a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit that you must do. And that's what David describes. He says, verse 10, creating me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. And that word means something like repair or a, a repaired or a well-ordered heart that works the way it's supposed to. That desires the right things. That loves the right loves. That is, that's functioning and working properly. It's not diseased, it's whole. And then again in verse 11, take not your Holy Spirit from me, he says. And then again in verse 12, uphold me there, strengthen or prop me up is what that means, with a willing spirit, with a spirit that desires to do the things you tell me to do. Okay, so this is what David's looking to God to do. But make this connection. I want you to make this connection in verse 12. You've got to see it here, it's really important. That the willing spirit that David talks about there in verse 12 is connected with joy. And so he sings there in verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. So in the first part of the, of the verse, it's, a, it's, a willing, it's joy. And then in the second, it's a willing spirit. And the way ancient poetry worked is those two lines in a single verse were describing the same thing in two different ways. So joy and willing spirit are one and the same. It's, the, it's ultimately two ways of saying the same thing. David needs a willing spirit, and what he ultimately needs is joy. He's lost his joy. He says, give me back my joy, because that's what will make me willing. I need joy. And so we've arrived at just another principle. And it's just this, that if you look at this passage, and at the passages in First and Second Samuel, David didn't just lose his joy because he sinned. He also sinned because he lost his joy. Jonathan Edwards wrote a, a really hard read book called Freedom of the Will. And in Freedom of the Will, he argued that we always choose according to our greatest inclination or desire. And so when we sin, we sin because at the moment we have a greater desire for that thing than we do for anything else. There's a, that thing that we want is a greater joy to us than God. It's an issue of joy. It's a matter of joy. The problem is, is our heart gets all screwed up and we begin to delight in and hope for and seek for joy in the wrong things. And so John Piper put it this way. He says, total depravity is not just badness, but blindness to beauty and deadness to joy. I mean, what's wrong with our hearts is not just that we're bad, but we're blind to beauty and we're dead to joy. And so what David prays here in verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. What we need in our fight against sin, what we need is ultimately joy. The best example of this I know 
is the story of Augustine from church history. And I don't know how familiar you are. It's in, in Florida, it's St. Augustine. In heaven, it's St. Augustine. Right, right? You familiar with this? Augustine. Um, Augustine loved God, but he loved his mistress more. And if you read his confessions, there were years of his life where he struggled and he struggled and he struggled because he knew the implications of, of the gospel and he just could not wrestle his heart away from his enjoyment of his sexual exploits. And he was just in anguish of soul over these things. And the way he put it, he put it this way, he says, he said he still experienced more joy in his sin than in God and so he lacked the strength to fight against sin and to overcome it. His desire for sin was too strong. So he knew God had to do something. He knew he needed joy in God that triumphed over other joys that would therefore sway his will towards obedience. And it's exactly what happened. God came in in a powerful way, in a radical conversion experience. And here's how Augustine described his conversion experience, and it's so helpful for us. He said, this is from his confessions, how sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I, which I once feared to lose. You drove them from me. You who are the true, sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place. You who are sweeter than all pleasure. See, this is David's prayer. Give me back my joy. Drive out the fruitless joys that lead to my sin and give me joy in you. Make my heart willing to obey. I mean, David sinned because he lost his joy in God. And so he prays. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. And so we have to ask as we come to a close, how do we find this kind of joy in God? The Apostle Paul, writing to the Galatians who had lost the gospel and turned away from it and gone back to religion, trying to earn their salvation through personal moral achievement, he writes to confront them about what they've done. And one of the diagnostics he uses, and it's just fascinating to me, and it should be, it, it, it should be a word that condemns the church of Jesus Christ in so many ways, but he asked this simple question, what's happened to your joy? And that's what religion does. It robs you of your joy. Because you see, the power to forsake sin comes from deep joy in the gospel, only the gospel. Religion doesn't produce joy. In religion, the way to get right with God is through moral reformation, but it doesn't produce gratitude and joy. It produces pride if you're successful, despair if you fail, but never joy. So the only way to get joy is to see what David saw, that his only hope was that God would be merciful. So he says, go back to verses 7 and 9. In the middle of this psalm, this is where his heart kind of revolves around and where he ultimately gets his joy from. He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, I shall be whiter than snow. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my transgressions. You notice he doesn't pray, God help me not to sin. He prays, hide your face from my sins and erase from the record all of my iniquities. And that is exactly what God promises to do in the gospel. And so the key to understanding how this works, and where to find the joy that could unlock, you know, a new obedience for you, in all of this psalm is in this very obscure reference in verse 7, when David says, purge me with hyssop. In Hebrews chapter 9, the writer of the book of Hebrews mentions how hyssop, was used by Moses during the inauguration ceremony of the Mosaic Covenant in Exodus chapter 24 in the Old Testament. And in that chapter, God, God gathers Israel together to himself, his people, and he gives them the law. And Moses reads the law of God to the people, and they respond by saying, all the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient to him. And then Moses does a very strange thing in that setting. He takes blood from the offerings that he's offered on the altar there, 
and he, and he begins to throw blood on everything. He throws it on the altar. He throws it on the book. He throws it on the people. Blood everywhere. And Hebrews 9 says that it was hyssop that Moses used. He dipped the hyssop into the blood, and he sprinkled the book of the law, and he sprinkled the altar, and then he turned to the people, and he sprinkled the people. And as he sprinkled the people with the hyssop, you know, the hyssop dipped in blood, he sprinkled them. He said, this is the blood of the covenant. And so even in the giving of the law, God is saying, ultimately, you can't be clean. You'll never be clean by keeping the law. There has to be blood. But if you've been in the church for a while, when you hear Moses sprinkle the people with blood and say, this is the blood of the covenant, your ears should perk up at that. Because what is it that we say when we quote Jesus every month when we celebrate communion together? Matthew chapter 26. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And there's the gospel connection. See, David says, purge me with hyssop and I will be clean. He understood. See, he understood that even when the law was given in Exodus 24, there was blood. I mean, there was blood everywhere. There was blood on the altar. There was blood on the book. There was blood on the people. It was God's way of teaching his people that they couldn't make themselves clean by keeping the law. There had to be blood as an atonement for their sins. Because they would not keep their word. They would not obey the way they promised to. There had to be blood. It was the only way that he could make them clean. And here's the way the writer of Hebrews reasons this out. He says, but if the blood of bulls and goats sanctify, then how much more will the blood of Christ, through whom the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify? I mean, David says, wash me. And I shall be whiter than snow, but only the blood of Jesus can do that, not the blood of bulls or goats. He prays, hide your face from my sins, verse 9, and blot out my iniquities. And the gospel truth is just this, that God does, in fact, hide his face from our sins because he's turned his face away from Jesus on the cross. I mean, Jesus was blotted out. He was utterly destroyed and consumed by the wrath of God so that God could blot out your sins. He was cast away from the Father's presence out into the everlasting torment and darkness of hell itself and consumed by the wrath of God, cast away from the Father so that David and all who have faith in him could pray, cast me not away from your presence. And what this passage ultimately teaches is just this, and in your darkest moments, in your darkest moments, in your most sinful moments, on the heels of the grossest sin in your life, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, in your darkest moments, you can pray. You can say, hide your face from my sins, and he will. You can pray, cast me not away from your presence, and be absolutely confident that he never will. And when the gospel comes home to your heart like that, then like Augustine, I mean, here's what happens. When it comes home like that, when you become convinced of that, then you'll find joy in God that will triumph over all other joys. And then what the result will be, you'll be a person who will be able to confess your sins. You'll be a person who can grow to hate your sins without hating yourself. You'll even be able to sing about them. And ultimately, you'll find the power, which is this joy that comes through the gospel, not only to be a person who confesses your sins well and who hates them without hating yourself, but ultimately a person who can forsake sin. Because you have a joy in God that triumphs every other joy. And when we become people like that, then we'll begin to pray prayers like this. And when we become a people who begin to pray prayers like Psalm 51, 
our city will change. And we'll get work done. And so let's pray that God would do that. Can we do that together? Lord Jesus, I do pray for all of us this morning as we sit together here called, as we've seen, out of the world and into your presence. Who are we, O Lord, that we should stand? If you, uh, O Lord, counted our sins, who could stand against you? But what the psalmist says is, you do not treat us as our sins deserve. You cast our sins as far away from us as the east is from the west. This is the truth of the gospel. And so with you there is forgiveness, the psalmist says, and therefore you are greatly feared. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would come and that you would drive home the truth of the work that you have done on our behalf to our hearts, that we might, as we sing, sing as those who, who are willing and able, free to confess our sins, who have in our hearts a hatred for our sin, but not a hatred for ourself, that we are more concerned with how sin affects you and your heart than how it affects our own view of ourselves, and that we would be a people, ultimately, that, that what would characterize us as a church, would, we would be a people who are committed to forsaking our sins and turning from them and endeavoring to a new obedience that the nations of the earth might stand up and see that we might be light, a city on a hill full of good works that others see and the result is give, good, give glory to you. So bear fruit in us that you might be glorified, we pray, Lord Jesus. And form us as a people who pray prayers like this that your grace and your gospel might be delighted in and enjoyed not only by us, but by the city we live in and the world to which you've called us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you've not, uh, you've not intentionally, decisively uh, turned away from both your sins and your, all of your attempts to make yourself righteous in your own eyes according to your own efforts and turn to Christ, I want to invite you to do that. Uh, If you are a Christian and there are areas of your life where you're struggling to fight against sin and and it feels like a losing battle, remind yourself even now what you need is joy. And so pursue it. And and this, this is the benefit of the benediction here at the end of the service, is that here's where your joy is located, that if you're here and your faith is in Christ Jesus, then no matter what you've done this past week to blow it, Uh, His love for you is as constant as it was if you did everything perfectly. Now think about that for a while. And let that warm your heart. Until there is a joy in Him that triumphs all other joys. That gives you the freedom to forsake your sins. And so, we need this word then, don't we? And so receive then the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you, be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.